All right. Uh, well, we have five guests with us who driven who drove all night from North Carolina a couple Woo-hoo! of days ago <laughs> to, to join us. And so uh, David Adams was wondering earlier, you know, in, in view of the great sacrifice that people have made to come all this distance, who are usually tuning in long, long, uh, you know, long distance. Uh, what are we going to be talking about today? Is this going to be something that's really geared for them? And uh, so we're, we're going through Leviticus. We do expository preaching here. That's what we like to do. And like it or not, we are in Leviticus chapter 18. Now, Leviticus chapter 18, for those who have not read it in a while, let me give you the three highlights of Leviticus chapter 18. Incest bestiality, and homosexuality, all right? And uh, so, uh, but mixed in with all that, there are some really wonderful lessons, I think, for us to learn, too. So so let's let's hang with the text. Let's hang with the text, and let's, uh, let's learn from that. And for those who may have children around, uh, I'm not going to be explicit, but I'm going to read the scriptures, and we're going to talk about these things. So, uh, so, so keep that in mind for those who want to join us for the rest of the lesson here. So, the, the, the Leviticus shifts at this point in time. First 17 chapters, everything we've covered up up to this point, most of it has to do with the priests and the sacrifices and and the the, the things having to do with the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. Uh, the first seven chapters were about different types of sacrifices, and then the next three chapters of that were about the responsibilities of the priests and the ordination of the priests. Leviticus 11 was about the clean and the unclean animals, and then uh, there were some chapters about how what the priests can do to spiritually cleanse people after uh, uh, childbirth or, or outbreaks of leprosy or severe mildew or, or things like that, plague-like things that, that take or discharges the body. So, But a lot of it is focused on the priests. And here, the focus changes, and, and then Leviticus 16 and 17 was talking about blood, and it was talking about the Day of Atonement. So this is, we're now, we're moving away from things that are very much focused on the priests to things that are focused on everybody and how we live our lives. So now we're getting into the moral teachings, the moral and ethical teachings that are included in the book of Leviticus. And this includes some of the most controversial parts of the Old Testament. So we should be familiar with those. And I've had, I've, or have, have even recently, I've had uh, arguments and sharp discussions with people who really have a hard time with some of the things in the book of Leviticus that we're about to touch on here. So Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, they all kind of go together. We're going to uh, look at the first part of that. As I mentioned, Leviticus 18 talks about three rather disturbing things. Leviticus 19 is famous for having the second greatest commandment, which Jesus refers to, love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 19. Uh, there's a lot in Leviticus 19 about looking out for the poor and, and looking out for those who, who are in need and taking care of them, providing for them. And so, so these three chapters, they talk about sacrificing to meet the poor and needy, living holy lives, not conforming to the world, things like that. So they're all in 18, 19, and 20. And... So now that we're shifting into the, the we we talked about how the the things having to do with the sacrificial system and the high priest they foreshadowed things about Christ and about what Christ was going to do for us and and his blood and how he atoned for our sins how he was the ultimate high priest so there's a lot in there that was foreshadowing Christ now the moral laws that are in here this is something that Christians ask all the time is how many of these moral laws apply to us? Do they all apply to us? Do none of them apply to us? Do certain ones apply to us? And that's not an easy question to answer, but I'll just throw that out there for you to think about. And this, this raises another question, well, what do we do with the law of Moses? I mean, I remember thinking as a young Christian 
that when I learned that the law of Moses was was canceled, was was done away with, was nailed to the cross, as it says in Colossians chapter two, it says the law was Moses wiped out, taken away, nailed to the cross. I thought, like with with an old con- with a contract. David's a, a, a lawyer who deals with contracts. A lot of times what they'll do when something no longer applies in a contract is they'll have the strikeout font where you have a line running through it. And I thought in my Bible, maybe they should have a, the strikeout font for all the parts in Leviticus, all these things that don't apply to us anymore. I thought, well, that'd be the whole book of Leviticus. And I, but I, but I, I look at some the scriptures, I think, well, actually, uh, the New Testament talks about a lot of things from Leviticus and Deuteronomy from the Law of Moses that we're supposed to learn things from. So, uh, you know, as mentioned in Colossians chapter 2, the law was done away with. On the other hand, it says that the law was, Law of Moses, these things were a shadow of things to come. So this was preparing people for what would come in the future. In Hebrews 8, we've, we've discussed this a few times in, in recent class, classes, it says the days are coming when God will bring about a new covenant. That's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31 or, and Septuagint chapter 38. So it's, the, a new covenant will, will come. And, and the point the Hebrews writer makes there is he says, well, if there's a new covenant that's coming, that means that the old covenant must be obsolete. The old covenant is going to be replaced. So this is the old covenant. It's obsolete. Galatians, it says in Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. A lot mentality, mindset a lot of Christians have is, well, the law, the purpose of the law, the reason the law was given was just to show us that we are so, we're so bad. We're such spiritual losers that Whatever rules that God gives us, we can't possibly follow. It's just to show us that we're inadequate, we're no good, and that therefore we need to be saved by the grace of Jesus Christ through, through, through nothing that we do on our own. That was the purpose of the law. But the scriptures say uh, uh, something more than that uh, uh, in the New Testament so that 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 the good news isn't just that the law was worthless and showed us what what derelicts we are in Galatians chapter three. Let's turn there. Think. What do we do? This is the question. This is the question. What do we do with the law of Moses? Why was it given in the first place? Was it just to show that we can't follow the rules and that that rules are rules are no good? So, in Galatians chapter 3, verses 23, it says, But before the faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. So, so the thing about this is a tutor. A tutor is would be given to a small child to bring it along to a certain point, and then after the child learned the things at the hand of the tutor, which were useful, it then progressed and didn't have to go back to the tutor again. So the tutor brings someone along further to get where they need to go. I think of maybe a physical representation of this would be as the Jews are wandering through the wilderness, Moses took them all the way from Egypt to the point where when when Moses died on the mountain, he was looking over to the promised land. He, He brought them literally into eyesight of the promised land, but he couldn't finish the job. Moses took them most of the way, but Joshua... And if you're reading in, in the Septuagint, it's Jesus. It's the, the same word. So Moses took the most of the way. Jesus finished the job. So this is the picture that I see of the law. The law will bring you to a certain point, but then Jesus takes over and finishes the job and goes the rest of the way. It's not that it's useless, but it, it, didn't, it didn't finish the job. It, it prepared, the, prepared the people for the last step of the journey. 
You follow, you, you follow the picture there. Okay, so that, that's kind of how I view it. It's a tutor to bring them along as children to the point where they're ready to make the next step as mature adults, but they don't need to go back to, to uh, first grade again. They don't need to go back to the tutor. So now the next question is, well, what does that mean? So the law is bringing us along, and one of the things I think about if the law is to lead us to Christ and Christ will finish the job, will be saved by faith, one of the ways that the law leads us to Christ is through the prophecies. And I think of the law of Moses, one of the prophecies that I think of in connection with the law of Moses is Genesis 49, when uh, Jacob is on his deathbed, he blesses his 12 sons, and he gives this spectacular blessing to Judah that the great ruler to come will be descended from him, and he explains this. So it's a great prophecy that's in the Law of Moses in the book of Genesis. Law of Moses is the first five books of the Bible. So I also think of the great prophecy in Deuteronomy 18. And we talk quite a bit about that in this group, probably more in most groups. Deuteronomy 18 is a great prophecy. It's, it's referred to in Acts 3 and in Acts 7. Peter talks about it, and, uh, and Stephen does, is applying to Jesus. And God said to Moses before he died, he, Moses re recounts this, what God had said to him on Mount Sinai, and when, when, when God was speaking to him from Mount Sinai, and the Lord says to Moses, in the future, I will raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers, and everyone must listen to him, and, and the one who doesn't is going to be called to account for that. So this is the famous prophecy of Deuteronomy 18. The prophet like Moses was Jesus. If you look at the life of Moses, we've talked about this in the past, we see so many detailed things about the life of Jesus. I was talking yesterday to a missionary in Sierra Leone, who was visiting my daughter who lives downstairs in our two-family house. And he was talking about how in Sierra Leone, in Africa, he's, he's spreading the gospel there. And he said the people there, a lot of them can't read, and they can't write, but they love stories. And if you tell them a story, they will repeat it in their culture. This is what they do. They repeat the stories. And he said, one of the things that I really love to teach people is he said something that you taught me a while ago, which we talked about here, is the how the prophecy about how Jesus was the prophet just like Moses. I mean, just a, one point would be, as a baby, a wicked king wants to kill him, but he somehow escapes, but a lot of other innocent boys die in the process. I mean, that's just, that's point number one. But he, he laid out several of these, and he says that the people there love the stories like that. So this is all in the law of Moses. We see things that are leading us to Christ, that are preparing the way for Christ through the prophecies, the different different styles of prophecies, and also through the foreshadowings. You know, we, we, the story of Abraham sacrificing his one his beloved son and laying him on the wood to offer him as a sacrifice. You know, that's, that's uh, uh, foreshadowing Jesus, preparing us away for Jesus, or Exodus 12, the Passover lamb, that the people are spared by the blood of the lamb from, from, the, from death. The whole sacrificial system, which we talk quite about in connection with Leviticus, with the high priest and the blood and the day of atonement, the most holy place, all this is preparing the way for Jesus. So there are a lot of different styles of prophecies and foreshadowings that are tutors that are leading us to faith in Christ. But there's another element in the law in, in, the, in the law that uh, an early Christian writer pointed out, and I'll share it with you. This is not inspired, but I thought it makes a lot of sense. This is Clement of Alexandria, and he it was a I'll I'll throw the reference in the notes. Actually, it's in the, it's a, a work called Miscellanies or the Stromata, and Clement of Alexandria is uh, an early Christian who had. Uh, uh, perhaps uh, an early undiagnosed form of attention deficit disorder, meaning that he had the inability to stick with any one subject for a time. So he jumped from one thing to, to another. 
and the, and his and his style. You know, this reminds him of something, and he chased chased rabbits. So he has a very delightful. He, the guy is incredibly well read, but he jumps around a lot. So it, it, if you're looking for the pithy one-liners, this probably isn't the guy for him. So, but he, he goes into this and he explains this, and he says the law of Moses introduced man to the ethical and moral principles and called people to restrain the urges of the flesh, the sinful desires, and called people to rein it back in. And that was morally preparing people for Jesus because it was teaching them what God is like and it was teaching them they got to be self-controlled. They can't just they can't just be just living for the flesh and letting it rip. Okay, they got to they got to start pulling it back in. Now Jesus took it from there. And Moses restricted. You know, we're going to see Moses restricted a lot of sexual activity that was that was uh, rampant in the ancient world. He cut a lot of things out. Polygamy was still allowed. Jesus cut it back further. Divorce and polygamy were still allowed. Jesus cut it back further. But. But Moses took the people most of the way there. Jesus took them the rest of the way there. This is the idea. So we see in the laws the character of God. God is concerned about being kind to animals. That's, that's the nature of God. God is concerned about being kind to aliens, not just the Jews. He says, you know, you got to look out. You were aliens once yourselves. You need to be looking out for the aliens. You need to be treating your animals kindly. You need to be looking out for the poor. When you harvest your fields and your vineyards, don't pick every last grape and, and, and head of grain in the field. Leave some for the resident aliens and leave some for the poor. So this is God. God is showing that he cares about the poor and he wants them to do the same thing. So you see in the law of Moses the character of God and also God is calling people to restrain their sexual appetites from just doing whatever they feel like. Uh, so, in, in all different ways. And Clement Alley, he gives several examples of this, but this is the point that he's making as he's saying, the law was preparing people to under, appreciate the nature of God and the dangers of sin and the importance of self-control. Uh, and, and the importance of, of respecting other people, the importance of marriage and the family, and 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 and, and treating your your wives, the wives and husbands, treating each other with respect. Uh, so that's what he's saying. This preparing people morally and ethically for the coming of Jesus. And when you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts off by saying, "Well, Moses taught you this." But I teach you this, and he takes it higher. Moses taught you, you don't murder. I teach you. I tell, I'm going to tell you, you don't even hate people in your heart, and you be reconciled with people. Moses told you to to give a certificate of divorce when you commit adultery. But I'm telling you, we're going to restrain it even further. I think John gave the example the other night. He says the law most like guardrails. Okay, yeah. and but but Jesus Jesus lays out an even narrower path. After that, base on those. So, so, this is preparation. Now, with that in mind, Amen. let's let's open up and dig into some rather disturbing material in Leviticus chapter eighteen. In Leviticus eighteen, starting in verse one. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God, according to the way of life in the land of Israel where you dwelt. You shall not do. And according to the way of life in the land of Canaan where I bring you, you shall not do, nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall do my judgments and keep my ordinances and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep all my ordinances and my judgments, and do these which a man does, he shall live by them. I am Lord your God. So he says, first of all, he says, I'm going to lay out the way of life I want you to live, not like the way people in Egypt were living, where you just came out of, and not like the lives of the people who were living Canaan in the land you're about to go into. So, as you're reading this, you can think about, hmm, wonder what 
the Canaanites were doing that God was so angry with them that he wanted them to be wiped out. This may answer the question. He says, don't be like the Canaanites, and then he goes into detail, and he, and he follows up with that later on. Okay, verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father and mother you shall not uncover. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. Nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It's your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, her nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, the nakedness you shall not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, begotten by your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. And he goes on, he talks about ants and other, you get, you get the idea. It's basically, you can't have intimate physical relations and you can't marry people who are close relatives. Now, this is something I always took for granted. I thought, well, doesn't everybody know this? I mean, you don't marry your sister. You don't marry your mother. You don't marry your granddaughter. Uh, doesn't everybody know this? And actually, the answer is no. Not everybody knows that. That there, in ancient times particularly, these practices were pretty rampant. All, all over the place. So I, I'll give you a quote to illustrate that even in early New Testament, early times of the church about what the practices were in other parts of the world. So things that we may take for granted were commonplace in the ancient world, including in, in Egypt and Canaan. So uh, father and mother, sisters, or even in this case from, from the description, even a half-sister, like for example, Abraham and Sarah, Sarah was Abraham's half-sister by, by the same, same father, different mothers. So this would be prohibited. So God has, has narrowed things down from even from the days of Abraham when Moses is speaking here. Your aunt, the daughter-in-law, close kin, and later on he even says that you don't marry two sisters because they're going to be rivals with each other. And what does that make you think of? It makes me think of Jacob with... Uh, Rachel and Leah. It says, <laughs> that was before that. It says, "Don't they're going to be? That's going to cause problems. Don't do that." So polygamy was allowed. Divorce, issuing a certificate, was allowed at this point in time under the law of Moses. But there were restrictions even from earlier times with God's people. Uh, <clears throat> let's read and. Leviticus 19. You shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she's in her menstrual period of uncleanness. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. Furthermore, you shall not give your offspring to worship a ruler, nor shall you defile my holy name, I am the Lord. So he says, uh, uh, you don't lie with a woman in the time of a monthly period, and Someone heard from another group heard that I was teaching on Leviticus, and they said, as a husband and wife, they said, we're wondering, does this apply to us today or not? And I'm, my, my initial response was, how in the world would I know the answer to that question? I thought it was a good question. Uh, without going into it here, I'll mention, I'll, I'll put some things in the notes for people who want to pursue that question further. But uh, so I got asked a question about this uh, from some people wonder about that. Does that still apply to, uh, or not? Don't lie with a neighbor's wife. That's adultery. That's right in the Ten Commandments. Don't give your children to worship a ruler. Okay. Uh, and then verse 22 and 23. Now this is getting into uh, pretty controversial territory here. Verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Nor shall you mate with any animals to defile yourself with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Okay? So this is he's talking about men having sex with other men. You're, you're lying with each other carnally. He says this is, this is abomination. This is a perversion. You can't do that. Uh, and he, so, so this is what's going on in the nations that are around them. He says you can't do this. And he also, even bestiality, so people are having sex, men and women both are having sex with animals, some, somehow, some way. So he says you can't do that either. Uh, this is this terrible thing. So, uh, 
Now let's let's continue here. We're gonna we're gonna pick up and talk about that a little further, but I want to pick up in verse 24 just about what he's saying about the Canaanites, and let's think about that. We're going to go back and take a look at some of these, uh, particularly the homosexuality thing, uh, and more specifically. Verse 24, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these ways of life the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before your face. For the land is defiled on account and on its account I am repaying them for the wrongdoing. Thus the land became vexed for those dwelling in it. You shall therefore keep all my ordinances and my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or the resident alien who dwells among you. For the men of the land before you did all these abominations, and thus the land was defiled. That the land not be vexed with you in your defilement of it, as it was vexed with the nations before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, these souls shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance so as not to do any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and not to defile yourselves by them, for I am the Lord your God. So he's saying, these things which I am prohibiting you from getting involved in, this is the reason I'm about to wipe out the people in the land that you're going to inherit, because this is how they're living. This is what they're doing. So they're involved in bestiality, they're involved in homosexuality, they're involved in incest, and he says These are, this is the reason why they're getting kicked out. Uh, let's, and it reminds me of what God said about 400 years earlier in Genesis 15. When Gen- Genesis 15, Abraham is in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. And God promises him that his descendants in the future will inherit that land. It was very interesting to me the way he describes that. In Genesis 15, starting at verse 13, it says, uh, then, he, then he, referring to the Lord, said to Abram, Know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land not their own, and will serve them and will afflict and humble them for 400 years. So that's that's the captivity in Egypt. Also, the nation they serve I will judge, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, buried in a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the sin of the Amorites is not yet filled up. So this was the picture. God was looking down the road and he says, you're going to go into Egypt for 400 years. He doesn't mention Egypt, that's what he's referring to. You go, and your, your descendants, you're not going to inherit the land yourself. Your descendants are. They're going to go into another land for 400 years and we're going to wait until the sin of, of the people who live in this land is so bad, it's filled up, it's ripe, it's overflowing, and that's exactly when they're going to come out. I'm going to judge the nation. I'm going to ju- he's going to judge the Egyptians, but I'm going to count. He's going to judge also the people who are getting involved in all this sin. So that's what's what that was going on there. Uh, there's an interesting passage to me is very interesting in in the in wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom of Solomon. It's not in uh, uh, modern Protestant Bibles. It's if you have an old King James from the 1800, 1800s, uh, 1880s or earlier, it's probably going to be in there. And if you have a Catholic Bible, an Orthodox Bible, uh, so you know, uh, 150 years ago, everybody considered this to be part of Scripture, pretty much. Uh, so, in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 12, the, the Scripture talks about the sins of the Canaanites here. I found this very interesting. Starting in verse 3. It says, For you, inhated, you hated the inhabitants of your holy land long ago. It's talking about the Lord. Because they practiced very hateful works of sorcery, and unholy rites, these unmerciful murderers of children who ate sacrificial meals of human flesh and blood, these initiates in the midst of an orgy, these parents and murderers of helpless children 
You willed to destroy by the hands of our fathers that the land most precious of all to you might be a worthy colony of the servants of God. But even these you spared since they were men and sent wasps as forerunners of your army that you might destroy them little by little. You were not powerless to give the ungodly to the righteous in regular battle or destroy them by terrible wild beasts or by one severe word. But judging them little by little, you gave them a chance for repentance. For you were not unaware that their generation was evil, their vice implanted, and their reasoning would not change forever. For they weren't a cursed seed from the beginning, nor did you give them amnesty for their sins because you feared anyone. So, it's interesting is that, 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 that this is another side of God. And people look at the Old Testament and say, oh, God's a vengeful God. He told the Jews to go in and obliterate everybody. And actually, it says, it said, first of all, it says, these Canaanites were more corrupt and evil than you can even imagine. They're eating human sacrifices. They're offering their, their children as sacrifice. And they're eating the flesh and, the, and drinking the blood of human sacrifice. They're involved in orgies. They're involved in witchcraft. They're involved in, in the occult. They're involved in every form of evil. It says, but even then, God could have, with one word, obliterated them. God could have, in one battle... Have the, have the Jews wipe them out, but he wouldn't do that. Just like it says in Deuteronomy, he's going to send the horn in. He's going, to, he's going to drive them out slowly. One of the reasons that he would do that is because he wanted to give those wicked people an opportunity to repent. He wanted to give them a chance to repent. I said, well, this is another side of God here. He, 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 he said to wipe them out, but, but, but give them a chance to repent. I mean, after all, think about Rahab the, the prostitute who's held up as an example of faith in James chapter 2 and who makes it into the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, she was of these people. She was from the land of Canaan where all these people were, and Jesus is descended from her on top of that. David is descended from her, and Jesus is descended from her. All the kings of Judah are descended from Rahab, if you look at the genealogies. Uh, so the God, God's plan, God's desire, God doesn't want, you know, God really doesn't want anybody, no matter how bad of the sin that they're involved in, he wants everybody to repent, and he sends warnings, that hopefully, to, to stir them up and to shake them up, that they'll repent and turn back to him, no matter how bad they are. That tells me something about the nature of God. also tells me something about the nature of the Canaanites in this whole story, to, to, to understand more of the background here. So... Uh, so the Canaanites were involved in all these sins that, that he's telling the people, the Jews, not to get into. He's concerned, God's concerned that when the Jews go into the land of Canaan, if they hang around, don't be deceived, bad company corrupts good character, that over time they're going to start to pick up the habits and the customs and the mindset of these people. And they're going, to get, they're going to get destroyed by the sin of these people, which is the other reason why God said that you need to wipe them out, because they're going, to, they're going to completely corrupt and destroy you by the sin that they're involved with. So, they're involved, the people in Canaan are involved with incest, they're having sex with parents, children, brothers, sisters, close relatives, rampant adultery, bestiality, homosexuality. And it's so bad that the guy says the land itself is defiled. He says, when you move into this land, he said, let the trees rest for a few years. Let, let, few, let a few years of, of rotten fruit fall off the trees before, because this land is so defiled by the tremendous sin that's been involved in there. Uh, so I, I'm looking at this whole story here. I see, I see another outside of God. I see mercy, patience, and yet justice of God at the same time. Uh, so let's go back to this question about homosexuality. Uh, one of my best, closest friends from college. I mean, I've been. I just my, this year's my 50th reunion from, from when I when I first started going to college. Not from college. A 50th reunion in my freshman year. So I've, I've known this guy for 50 years. We're in the fresh, same freshman dorm together. And uh, 
for a, he moved up to Boston for a little while, many years ago, and so we we so some friends of mine and I started studying the Bible with him. He's very interested in Jesus. He wanted to know more. He liked a lot of the, the sayings and teachings of Jesus. But as soon as someone pointed out to him that homosexuality, sex between men and men, and he, and he was HIV positive, actually, so, so he, he had suffered some, some pretty severe consequences of the sin that he was involved in. As soon as he heard that, the Bible closed. It was done. He, didn't, he no longer wanted to study the Bible or have anything to do with the Christians because, because of, of what, it, what it learned. I, mean, I think of the, what Jesus said in John chapter, I love the guy. He's a, he's a good friend of mine. We just, Alice and I just uh, spent some time uh, visiting him. We're out in the West Coast, so so I I I, I care about him. I still uh, reach out to him and uh, pray for him that he will repent and turn later on in his life. But but this was this was the showstopper. It was uh, I think of what Jesus said in, in John three. This is the verdict: light has come into the world. Men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. And uh, you know, he's he doesn't want to repent of that sin. And even recently, when we got together, when we were talking about the scriptures, he said, "Well, you know, there's a lot of great things in the scriptures, but there are certain things in Leviticus." And he didn't mention what they were, and he didn't need to mention what they were. I knew exactly what he was talking about. He said, "There are certain things in Leviticus." That are, that are outrageous, that can't possibly be inspired by God. And certainly you don't believe those things. Uh, all right? So, um, so, so that's the thing. But actually, it's surprising to me within the last 20, 30 years how the Christian landscape has changed on this sin of homosexuality. I mean, I was growing up as a kid, I mean, everybody knew that that homosexual relationship were sinful. That was it was it wasn't something that was uh, there was. I never heard any argument or any any you know adultery is, is sinful and and sex before marriage is sinful and uh, sex between two men or two women is sinful. You just can't do that. So I it was always I just I grew up uh, believing that it was maybe just kind of by osmosis than anybody showing me uh, from the passage in the scripture, uh, but in I mean, here we are in Boston, and Massachusetts was the first state in the country. It was not California. It was Massachusetts, the first state in the country to legalize uh, same-sex marriage. And it was considered a moment of liberation. This is the progress. We're moving forward. This is great. Okay, now, you know, we got rid of slavery in the 1860s, and we get rid of... uh, 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 segregation in the 1950s and 1960s, and now we have the liberation of, uh, of homosexuals, of homosexual relations. Um, Alice and I were in a waiting room in a hospital this last week, and the TV was on in the waiting room, and the President of the United States was speaking to the United Nations. And so um, I we're there for five minutes, but he was. I was listening to the tail end of his speech, and he was he was talking about how this is the war in Afghanistan, which was a total mess, total disaster. But he's he's trying to put a nice face on on the whole thing, speaking in front of the UN about we need to be very concerned about LGBTQ um, uh, uh, rights being defended in Afghanistan, which is now a Muslim country basically under Sharia law. So I uh, try to put a nice face on uh, something that was, was a, a, a disaster on all kinds of fronts. And the thing, that, the thing that got me is this is someone who is identifying as a Christian and as a, as a Catholic and as a Christian who's, who's pushing this. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we should be, the government certainly shouldn't be uh, trying to enforce Christian or Muslim moral standards, but I thought, wow, how, how things have changed that that's being promoted and embraced and celebrated in the way that it is, even by by uh, somebody who's who's supposedly uh, Christian. Um, several years ago, maybe 20 years ago at this point, 15, 20 years ago, I was teaching. To, uh, in downtown Boston, 
It was to a campus ministry group where it was students who were Christians from all different campuses, you know, Harvard, MIT, Boston University, Boston College, the other colleges in the Boston area, Northeastern. So there were, there were students from all these different campuses there, and we were, we were studying through the book of Genesis, and we got to the story of Genesis 19 of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And after reading the passage, I said, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that led to their destruction? Dead silence in the room. Nobody wanted to open their mouth and raise their hand and state the obvious. Nobody wanted to do that. And that was, that was, that was 15, 20 years ago. Things have gotten quite a bit further down that, that road. Because I think because they, they, want, they don't want to come across as being insensitive, being a bigot, being hateful, and having all these other things piled, piled on top of that. And so um, I said, well, all right, let me, instead of me answering that question, let me have uh, a New Testament writer-inspired Jude answer that question for us. So I turned to Jude, verses 5 to 7, and read that. And you, you can follow along with me. It says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the, his, the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So, there you go. Um, uh, And... uh, so after reading that, the room became even more quiet than it was before. There were a couple, a couple of the guys were, were chuckling a little bit. They thought it was kind of uh, amusing that I was, I was stepping into an area that other people were afraid to, to tread on. Um, but uh, and I, think, I, I think if I was going to make a projection of the future here, I think the day is fast approaching when people who are teaching on this subject will be shut down and not even be protected by the First Amendment, it's going to be considered hate speech. The churches that teach this will be face severe persecution, including losing, losing their tax-exempt status, and, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, so it's not another good reason to be in a house church, so we don't have to worry about, about <laughs> financial issues. The government cuts us off financially, doesn't change us at all. Uh, and, and the attitude of most churches today, this is, this is a really uncomfortable topic. Nobody wants to touch this with a 10-foot pole. People don't want to talk about this. It's right in the Scriptures. It's right in the New Testament and the Old Testament. You, because people don't want to be, preachers don't want to be branded as intolerant, bigots, haters, judgmental, judgmental. And they don't want to alienate people. They don't want to drive people out of the church. They want to be a welcoming, friendly, seeker-friendly church. Talk about things that make people feel good. And not about things that are going to be disturbing and are going to disrupt their lives. Um, and uh, and I see particularly the younger in the younger generation that that people in my my children's friends and their, their peer groups that that the convictions are pretty murky in this area, mm. even in churches that are pretty solid on the inspiration of scripture. They're kind of murky on this area. And I think it's the influence of they're, they're going to school and they're hearing this message over and over and over again right. mm-hmm. about uh, uh, about this is not a, a matter of sin, that this is just an ancient custom and, and this is bigotry and things like this. Um, but, uh, you know, what does the New Testament say about this? Is this just something that is in the book of Leviticus, or is it confirmed by the New Testament? Well, we just read the passage in Jude. Um, I also think about Acts 15, when the Gentiles are coming to become Christians. Uh, let's turn there. Acts 15. So think about this. You know, question of how much of the Old Testament applies. <clears throat> 
Gentiles are becoming Christians. And, and the question is, wait a minute, don't they have to become Jews first? Don't they have to get circumcised and follow the law of Moses and then get baptized in Jesus? Uh, and, and they get together and they, the conclusion was, no, they don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to follow the whole law of Moses. But it doesn't say they don't have to do anything. Uh, let's read Acts 15, starting verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised to keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good for us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. This obviously this is the their this is the apostles giving instruction to the other churches. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So the, the question was, do you have to follow the law of Moses or not? And the answer wasn't no. It was, well, just follow these four things. You know, you're not going to be stay away from idolatry and and from uh, uh, strangled animals and uh, from blood and from sexual immorality. Well, what does that mean? What is sexual immorality? Well, how do you know what sexual immorality is unless you read what it says in the law of Moses? It's, it's sex outside of marriage, man and a woman. Sexual immorality is defined in the law of Moses of what it is. So he says that's, that's, that's one of the things, one of the four things you still need to follow in there that the Gentiles had to follow. And uh, the... The uh, to avoid that, First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. This is they're dealing with putting some expelling some of the church for sexual morality. It's actually one of the things that is talked about in the past that we read in in uh, uh, Leviticus eighteen about a man is having sex with his father's wife. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So, and think about this. This is... In ancient Corinth, Corinth is a port city. They had people from all over the world there, and they had the sins of, from all over the world there. It says, hey, you know, and, and it says, some of you, he's writing to the Christians in the Corinth, the church in Corinth, you were fornicators and idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals and sodomites. It says, you were involved in these sins, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you, you were justified. So, you know, you can't go back to that. Don't, it's right in the Christian says, don't, don't fool yourselves. You can't inherit the kingdom of God if you're living that way. You used to live that way, but you were cleaned up. Don't go back to living like that. You were washed. Referring to, uh, they're baptized. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about the descent of people, the descent of the human race into immorality. Let's turn to Romans 1.18. It says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then it talks about there, they, they got involved and they, they ignored the God who created the universe and got involved in worshiping dumb idols. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. 
Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of the error of their ways. And it talks about how just that all the depravity and all the sins that, that came as a result of that cascading fall from refusing to acknowledge God to worshiping created things to sexual to sexual excesses to homosexuality and then all the other sins that came out of that. This is the, the, basically the condition of mankind the people were that had fallen into. There's uh, uh, a quote I read a while ago in the distant past, but I, I thought this was absolutely fascinating. This is a, a Syrian Christian called Bardasan or Bardasanes, and he lived from 154 to 222 A.D. So let's give you a little feel. This is pretty early in the church's history. He's a Syriac convert to Christianity who is familiar with customs in countries all over the world. So this is a little bit of a history lesson, and he's talking about what were the customs in different countries, in different parts of the world. Now, I'll read some selections. So he's talking about the Persians, who were further east than where he is. The Persians have made themselves laws permitting them to take as wives their sisters and their daughters and their daughters' daughters. And there are some who go further and take even their mothers. And so he's talking about, about that. So this, those are the Persians. Um, He's among the Bactrians, so they'd be from modern-day Afghanistan. They're, they're called a group called the Kashani. And he says, The women do not practice constancy, but had intimacies with their slaves and with strangers who go to the country. And their husbands do not find fault with them, nor have the women themselves any fear of punishment, because the Kashani look upon their wives only as mistresses. Okay, now let's move into Europe. But in the north, in the country of the Gauls, that would be France, modern-day France, and their neighbors, such youths among them as are handsome, the men take as wives, and even have feasts on the occasion. And it's not considered by them as a disgrace nor a reproach because of the law which prevails among them. So is... is uh, same-sex marriage, a progression as we're, at, we're, we're, we're moving higher up in, in our understanding and enlightenment? No, it's going backwards. This is how people were living back in the early centuries of the church. The, the homosexual marriage was going on. It was, it was in, in France and Greece and places like that. He said, among the Britons, so this is um, now I'm going after people of my own uh, heritage here, uh, going after, after everybody else. Many men take one and the same wife. So this is polyandry in Britain. Among the Parthians, who lived in modern-day uh, Iran, the northern part, on the other hand, one man takes many wives, and all of them keep to him only because the law which has been made there in that country. So this didn't start when, you know, in Islam they allowed men to have four wives. This didn't start with Muhammad. This was a pre this is a pre-Christian custom, an ancient custom that they're going back to. Yeah. On the other hand, he's talking about this is what the people do in all the nations, but he says, however, the Christians, wherever they are, he says, what should we say of the new race of us Christians whom Christ at his advent planted in every country and in every region? For lo, wherever we are, we are all called, after the one name of Christ, Christians. On the day, the first day of the week, we assemble ourselves together. On the days of the readings, we abstain from tasting sustenance, to my fasting. The brethren who are in Gaul do not take males for wives. Nor do those in Parthia take two wives, nor do those in Judea circumcise themselves, nor do our sisters who among the Geli consort with strangers, nor do those brethren who in Persia take their daughters for their wives, nor do those who in media abandon their dead or bury them alive or give them as food to dogs, nor are those who in Edessa kill their wives or sisters when they commit impurity, but they withdraw from them and give them over to the judgment of God, nor do those who were in Hatra stone thieves to death, but wherever they are, in whatever place they are found, the laws of the several countries do not hinder them from obeying the law of their sovereign Christ. So, what do you think about that? He's saying... The Christians are a new race of people 
We are a new race. We are a new nation. And we have outposts in all of these other nations. We have some of our people in all, the, all these nations. But wherever we are, we don't follow the local customs. We follow the laws of our Lord and Savior. We are members of a new race. We are one people. We are called Christians. And wherever we are, we follow his rules, not the prevailing rules around us. Okay? I look around the room today. I'm trying to think how many different countries we have. I have no idea. I mean, we've got, we have, we, we have just here with us today, we have people from European descent. There's one guy who was born in Poland uh, here, European, Poland, Germany. We have uh, a black American, Haitian, uh, at least three different stripes of, of Latino <laughs> with us here today. So we got, I mean, and, and, and there, there's at least one person from Asia on here. So we all five inhabited continents of the world. We have somebody from, from, from there. And the attitude is, hey, we're a new nation. We're a new people. So maybe we, our skin color looks a little different. Or we like different food. All right, we have different accents. But we are one nation. We're one people. Amen. And we follow the commands of our king. Okay? So don't let the world start to try, try to divide the church. We are God's people. We are our own, our own nation. We are a completely different race than all the people around us. So don't, don't act like them. All right? Um, so, conclusions and takeaways for us. Number one, we shouldn't be afraid of tackling this subject and teaching our children this subject. Let's let's open the Bible, study it out, and let's just let's just let's just wrestle with the scriptures and see what they say. The scriptural message is not complicated. Christian faith is really very simple. All right. The other thing, the opposite of homosexual immorality is not heterosexual immorality, it's purity. Right? That's, that's, that's the goal. The goal is not to turn homosexuals into heterosexuals, it's to turn everyone into people who are following the commands of Jesus and the high call of purity. So Christians from the beginning, either we lead single celibate lives or we get married to one faithful Christian of the opposite sex. Those are our choices. That's it. And it's until death do we part. Those are the only two options. Amen. Wherever we live, whatever cultural background we're, fought, we're from, we follow the laws of our own king and our own kingdom, the distinctive laws. We don't care about the local customs. We don't follow them. Right? That's somebody else's problem, not ours. We need to take the high ground morally. The people who are pushing homosexuality are going backwards. They're going backwards. We are moving forwards from the pagan corruption to the law of Moses, to the pinnacle, the teachings of Christ, the highest moral and ethical standards that there are on the, on the face of the earth. Amen. And they're sliding back down the, mo the mountain into the sins of the Canaanites and the Egyptians. That, that led to their ultimate destruction. Uh, and, and the other thing is, let's not be hypocrites. Let's not just be picking on the sin of homosexuality. Let's address all the sexual sins. Let's address them all and call people back to, we can't be coveting, we can't be lusting after other people, we can't be coveting each other's wives. Okay, we have to address fornication. You can't have sex before you're married. Internet pornography. You know, we need to be challenging each other and saying, hey, how is it going with your purity? How are you doing with internet, internet uh, the temptations that are out there? We need to be holding up the sanctity of marriage. That marriage is for life, the permanence of marriage. And Jesus said marrying a divorced person called it adultery. And adulterers are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. So we need to be restoring and teaching that, that, teach, that hard teaching to the married people, to the heterosexuals. And we need to practice righteousness and self-control and preach that. I mean, remember, was it Festus who said when, when Paul was preaching, he's, he's preaching righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And he says, I'm sorry, I, uh, I'll come back later. I don't want to hear any more right now. It's Acts 24. Okay? We need to be preaching self-control. Uh, and, and recognize the mortal danger of conforming to the world 
and the pattern of the world around us. Don't do that. That's what God is warning the people going into Canaan. Don't conform to the sins of the world. You've got to be living as my separate and distinct people. And then uh, preach the word in season and out of seasons. Paul told Timothy in uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. What does it mean? Out of season. That means when in season and out of season. To me that means when it's popular and when it's unpopular. And this teaching in Boston is unpopular. Okay. I don't know if we're going to get thrown off the internet or whatever. David, David, Dave may be, that's David's concern. But our job is to preach the word in seed and out. And, 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 and let the chips fall where they may. Amen. This is strong medicine. But when somebody is in mortal danger of spiritual death, we need to be administering the strong medicine and calling people to repent, holding up righteousness and holiness. Amen. 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 Amen.